Hey, everybody. Welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, you also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. Guru Nation, how are you guys? Top of the morning to you, as they say in the United Kingdom. Do they even say that anymore? It's nighttime. It's it's an Irish thing more than a UK. It's an Irish. Yeah. That's, you know, I always meant to ask uh, somebody from that area. Is that yeah. like actual thing or is that an American idea of a greeting? <laughs> I think it's probably old school and people probably did it in the uh, 19th century. Uh, top of the morning <laughs> to you. Top of the evening to you, Ross. Thank you for joining uh, yes. us uh, at a, in the evening. So thank you so much for doing this. Ross Jackson, I'm on his uh, LinkedIn profile right now. So he's literally the man who wrote the book on patient recruitment for clinical trials. I mean, literal. He wrote the book. Mm. We have an interview of him where we're discussing the book. And it's interesting, Ross, because, and we'll get to this later. We don't need to get into this now, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, but we will get into it. Facebook's doing some interesting stuff, changing their policies. And yes, we can speculate. Yes, uh, I actually interviewed someone from Meta on my podcast not too long ago. And we'll, we'll get into that. That's a cliffhanger for the sites. I know the sites yeah. are like, hey, what's going on? I had three emails from different people saying, hey, did you see this thing about Facebook changing their ads for patient recruitment? My vendors are not effective anymore. Who else? Who better than Ross Jackson mm-hmm. to come on and say, you know what? What's going on, Ross? So before we get into that, this article you wrote. Recently, effective patient recruitment in 2022. It's created a good amount of noise on LinkedIn. And I've actually had people reach out to me because of this article and say, Hey, why don't you interview this guy? And I'm like, This guy, I've already interviewed him. I know this guy. And yes, we'll interview him again because this article is super important. So 
What was it that motivated you to write this article, Ross? I guess that's a good place to start. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I think it's because I, I, over the last few years, I mean, I, I've got um, a background in the digital side of patient recruitment and the Facebook ads, obviously written the book about it. Uh, but over the you know, last few years, I've also uh, got involved in lots of different areas of patient recruitment, not just the digital side. And I thought it would be, it'd be useful to actually put all this together all the things that people can do for patient recruitment and put them all out there and say, right, if you're not doing some of these, maybe you should look at them. Uh, and if you are doing them, just make sure you're doing them correctly. So that, that's basically what the motivation was, just so that people could see there is a range of uh, possibilities. Uh, and these are the sort of things I expect to be successful this year, effectively. And a lot of these things are successful any year, but we'll yeah. get into that, especially number one, which we're going to mm-hmm. get into. But just for the people who haven't watched our first interview, and maybe it's good for the rest of Guru Nation to give an update. So how long have you been actually working in clinical research? Clinical uh, research, um, clinical research specifically, uh, probably seven years. But in terms of healthcare patient recruitment, goes back to 20 odd years. Um, so I, I did lots of, you know, so I've, I've focused primarily on the patient recruitment for clinical trials over the last seven years. But before that, I did lots of different types of patient recruitment. One of my first clients back in 1998, amazingly, was um, an actual a private doctor. So it was recruiting patients, but for a private doctor's practice, not for clinical trials. What I, what I found over the years is the, the methodology is pretty similar. It's the same. You're reaching out to people in the same way um, and then trying to persuade them that, your solution, whether it's a doctor or a clinical trial, is the right thing for them to do. I see. Yeah, I actually had an oncologist three days ago when I was in L.A. Um, he's like, hey, Dan, I need more oncology patients. And I said, well, I'm interviewing Ross Jackson soon. You should watch that <laughs> interview. I'm going to send him the link. So since our last interview it was about a year ago, right? Uh, yeah, maybe 18 months ago, actually. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So a year and a half. What, was, yeah. what have been your experiences since then working with sites on recruiting patients? Yes. So similar to what they had been before, although obviously there was something called COVID, obviously, has uh, overshadowed a lot of it. Uh, you may have heard of that. What um, is this thing, COVID? It's yeah, a... <laughs> it's, 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 I think it's perhaps a UK thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it, it, it has, there's been some interesting things going on, I think. And obviously, alongside this, uh, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of the changes within the industry. I mean, there's such a big um, uh, move towards decentralized trials now. Um, what do you think about this, decentralized? Uh, well, it's very interesting. I think I was talking with someone last week about this, and I think the um, decentralized what people originally thought of decentralized was like a purely digital solution, wearable tech, etc. people doing things in their own house. What they've come to realize over the period is that maybe that isn't actually that practical. So mm. what people talk about now and well, what they mean when they talk about decentralized is probably what we would describe as hybrid because uh, it's some decentralized and some at the site. I, I, my own experience suggests it's not possible to take the site out of the, uh, the trial ecosystem effectively, but there are situations where you can, 
Um, but, you know, they may as well have the site involvement anyway. These people have been doing this for so long. They're used to recruiting patients. They know what they're doing. There's no point bypassing that. You may as well use the site's uh, expertise, even if you're trying to do a decentralized trial. Yeah, decentralized trial is this thing that it's hot, you know, and there's a lot of money flowing into a lot of venture capital money, which is going to yeah. slow down mm-hmm. here as soon as rates go up, guys. You guys have been living good off of uh, low interest rates. All right. VCs need to put their money somewhere. Now rates are going up. They're going to think twice about you getting that big booth at the next conference. Uh, You have to have something pragmatic. And this is what Ross's solutions is something pragmatic. I believe decentralized trials is definitely a thing. And I agree with you. I think the site's are going to be more involved, not less. And we're going to need more sites, not less. But it's at its best, decentralized trials provides a convenience to patients, which is really, I think, the proper way to frame it. Um, but anyways, so let's, uh, I go on a rant with that one. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think that's, I mean, it, realistically, decentralized trials could have been in place uh, throughout the whole system for 10 years plus. Um, it's only the pandemic that's caused this big rush towards it. Now, the technology's always been there, but I think that's the key issue you've picked up on there. It's about being patient-centric, making it easier for the patient to participate yeah. is the key to it. That's, you know, access to, well, awareness is probably the biggest reason people don't participate, but access yeah. to the uh, to the trial itself is probably the second biggest reason not, be, awareness, not living next to a site. You're right. Awareness, access, which... At least that part, access, decentralized trials shows some promise. Awareness, I don't think so. I think that's people like you and people like me can do that as site Mm -hmm. owners, as recruitment experts, respectively. And there's a third thing that's very interesting since COVID. It's some, I don't know if it's controversial, but it's, it's important to discuss because it's, it's making my job more difficult as a site owner already. Mm -hmm. It's the. When COVID first came out, pharma, particularly big pharma, who did not have, let's be honest, okay, they did not have the best reputation. No. <laughs> you could, it's safe to say that one of the worst reputations in any, all industries, all right? No one's really going to argue with that, except people at big pharma, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had opportunity. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, they were winning this battle of improving their reputation and their brand what we've seen over the last 24 months is a complete failure in communication from not just big pharma but from cdc and from various regulatory bodies where they just keep flip-flopping on advice contradicting advice so Mm -hmm. now you have half of the world basically at least in the united states half of the country super distrustful of pharma yeah and then the other half that's left, I don't think they all trust pharma either. Uh, and they're, they're starting to lose that battle as well. So I think they actually done more harm for themselves than good. They wasted opportunity here with. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think the um, at the start of the pandemic, well, certainly when the vaccines first came out, it was like, hey, great. Pharma's actually doing something good for a change. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's that's over a year ago now. Uh, and actually, the I think the profiteering that people talk about, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, obviously, they have to make money. Um, but 
it just hasn't worked as well as it could have done. They could have piggybacked on this good reputation and done something better and become more. It's the mistrust, isn't it? There's there's mistrust in pharma, that's, and that's the third key, you know. I, I think it's it's people and. I mean, there's historical mistrust in the trials process anyway from certain communities. I think that's that's yeah. always going to be there. Um, but it's farmer itself has not helped itself, um, which is a shame because I think the uh, most of the people I know in farmer, pretty much everybody I know who works in the farmer industry, is actually in it for the right reason. But the uh, the general public doesn't always see that. Yes, most people are, but it only takes a few at the top to ruin it for they're the ones who really control everything and the reason i'm bringing this up not to bash big pharma i'm kind of sick of doing this i've been doing that for 10 years by the way but uh it's to let people know like these centralized trials it requires like you said ross that trust you know that's that third thing in that in those three pillars and trust if pharma is losing its trust how are you going to get patients to join studies in a decentralized fashion without sites? I mean, the, at the end of the day, the yep. community clinician is the one who still has the trust of the patients. I, I certainly agree. And I think that's, that's where I would like to see the de- decentralized movement go more towards in terms of actually getting the local, local doctors involved more than it, it, the focus is all on the tech. It's, I mean, I get approached once a week, at least, by people with new tech, new apps and things that they say, oh, look at this brilliant thing. I don't know if people want to do all this tech, the patients. I mean, <laughs> they, uh, I, well, in fact, I know that most of them don't in reality. So I think the being able to run a site, sorry, run a trial from a local doctor's surgery that you're already aware of, even if the main PI is somewhere else, they know the research site doesn't have yeah. to be that. It could be based somewhere else, but have a, an offshoot there. Then I think that's that's a great way to do it. There's, there's another angle as well. I love the. Um, I, I was very interested in the um, the way the the COVID vaccines were done in America in the retail outlets. I think um, I actually had my second COVID vaccine at a local pharmacy here called Superdrug um, in the UK, and I thought, wow, this is this, there's no reason why clinical trials should not be able to be administered from pharmacies, local doctors who already have the arrangement in place doesn't have to be managed from there totally but the actual collection of data etc can be done there and that's that's where i think decentralized really could come into its own could come in yeah it's gonna take the sites to buy in though and let me tell you as somebody who's back to being a coordinator basically full-time until i hire somebody oh right yeah the last thing i need is another vendor even if it's free (laughs) I have yeah. like eight vendor logins right now from my one study and they're all free. Okay. They're from the sponsor. So if a decentralized vendor comes and says, Hey, we're going to make your life easier. First of all, I don't believe it. Second of all, now you're giving me another platform I've got to manage. So these guys who think that it's that easy, you're not thinking about the end user really, which is the site. But anyways, HCP healthcare, Yes. HCP outreach is your first. And yes. I'm guessing you put it number one because it's the most effective. Can you explain? Um, I Well, I'd probably for myself, I'd probably say that the pa- direct patient outreach is the most effective one I've personally done most of. Uh, but I think HCP outreach is certainly I put it there because I think it should be could be the most effective. I know you've been talking about this for a long time, but it's um, it should be the way it works. 
I, I've not found it to work that as effectively as going through, let's say, digital platform like Facebook or others. But certainly HCP outreach should be a key factor. Um, it's very useful for rare disease, I find, uh, certain methods of it, especially in the US, because, you know, you can access lab test data and medical claims data and then actually directly target the doctor themselves who's got the patient you're looking for. It's not quite so easy outside of the US to do that. But I, I certainly think getting the doctors on board and again there's a time issue of course because they're doing lots of other things like you mentioned <laughs> there you've got you've got so many logins and things to do so it's it, it, you don't want extra hassle but what i think well my, my own view here is i think the entrepreneurial doctors will be more interested in getting involved in these kind of things because it's another revenue stream Whereas they, what they might not want to do is just get a lot of extra admin they have to do. So it's a balance between those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've done a good amount of H. I'm still doing healthcare provider outreach, um, primarily because I need more investigators for my uh, site, my new site out here. And LinkedIn works. I know you mentioned LinkedIn mm. in your article. You posted it on LinkedIn. LinkedIn does work. That's how I got my internal medicine. And then from him, he gave me colleagues of specialists. Mm. So it's kind of becomes easier also once you get your first HCP to, to buy in, they can actually then help you uh, find others. It becomes easier. I, I, yeah, I agree. And I, certainly LinkedIn, I find in this, uh, I've not only ever worked in healthcare and I've only done that. So I've worked in other industries as well alongside the, the healthcare. And I find LinkedIn is brilliant for a healthcare industry, because for some reason, everybody's on it. Um, everybody, all the whether it's right at the top level, the farmers or the local doctors, everybody's on it, whereas in some other industries, they're not. Mm. So link, LinkedIn is, is very useful, not just LinkedIn, there are other, other things, you know, there's doctors use doximity and whatever else, all those other avenues you can use. But yeah, LinkedIn is a good place to start, especially if you're doing it on your own. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, the, the next one, which is most sites are, going to perk up right now so digital outreach direct to patients um reaching people where they are yeah so let's talk about this and maybe we can dissect the whole facebook issue also sure. but let's let's just give an overview first sure so direct to patients is effectively that it's using it's reaching where they are people spend a lot of time on social media so facebook is one I'm very familiar with. Um, it, it may be becoming a little less effective than it was, but it's still, I, I would say for patient recruitment companies, it's probably still the main driver of patients um, from, you know, when reaching out to the general public and there's other platforms. Um, I was very surprised when TikTok became uh, the most visited domain last year, but it's also quite effective for recruiting patients, which uh, was a bit of a shock to me. I, I, my, my original thinking was two years ago, TikTok is just for 16-year-olds or whatever, but clearly not. Um, have you started using TikTok for clients yet? I, I haven't, but I, I have worked alongside people who have. That's your I've next very, book, Ross. It That's could be, yeah. Book. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. One of the yeah. other great things of it is it's a great way to reach the influencers. Which yeah. I think is the third thing on the list there because there are people are sharing a lot of information on TikTok. I mean, you've got share tips being being sold on uh, being sorry being given on uh, TikTok, and people are talking about their 
healthcare experiences on TikTok. So if you can reach those people and get them to promote a trial, for example, then it's it's a good way to go. But there's plenty of uh, online platforms. Um, Facebook, I think, will still continue to be a very effective one. If we you touched on this uh, recent update that's happened happening as as we speak, so they've basically uh, reduced the sort of levels of targeting. So you can't now target various things, sexual orientation, etc. But one of them is health issues. Mm. Um, so it was never actually that good anyway. Is what I would say about that. You could never really target fantastically well for the health issues, but there were things say cancer research if someone had uh, you know visited the cancer research web page or facebook page you could target people who'd done that whereas now you can't oh you can't so, so even if they like let's say because that's you could never actually target by health i mean nobody when they log into facebook nobody puts like i have depression yeah, exactly. and crohn's yeah, disease yeah. and plaque psoriasis no it, <laughs> they don't do that so you're you're basically as an advertiser, you're going for, and even like who likes a page plaque psoriasis, but they might visit groups and chats where they that, talking about those things, right? That, that's how it worked effectively. It was behavioral targeting. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Facebook pixel being on, let's say the cancer research website, somebody who visits that Facebook realizes that that person has visited this website. They then get into the interest targeting for cancer research. Mm-hmm. So that's, that. that's how that, whole system worked um and what they're shutting down is that effectively so it's i mean i i I did occasionally target through um the health interests certainly if it was a more rare condition but again you wouldn't be able to target the condition you'd be able to target the patient advocacy group potentially if it was in facebook if there was a facebook interest in their detailed targeting um, which there were not that many but sometimes you could find one so you could target it but it was such a limited number of people the the way that whole thing is gone the algorithms for digital targeting now if you set up your parameters for what you class as a conversion i.e what you want to achieve by advertising so someone signing up for a trial or at least expressing an interest in the trial the algorithm is so good now that you know within a few days maybe weeks at most you would get the same level of audience uh, interest same level of targeted audience as if you could target them by the interest in the first place so it's it's about effectively telling facebook i want people who are in, who are going to do this which is people who are going to be interested in visiting my trial page filling in the form facebook will then use its millions of data points to target people who are like the people that it seemed do that rather than using the interest targeting that we could use before. I see. Yeah. What, one of the things that always intrigued me about Facebook and I never did it well and is the lookalike audience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm it's, guessing that it's similar to this. It, yeah, if a lookalike audience works quite well, if you've already got a list of people, huh. So if you have a, you know, your own customer list of people who have participated in a trial, um, if you're allowed to use, <coughs> allowed to use that data, which you should be able to ask people if they, you are allowed to use it, but you could put that into Facebook and then Facebook would say, yeah, 
all these people have this, 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 and this in common, we can then target lookalikes of those people with your advertising. So it's, it's still effective like that. Um, if you've got what we call first party data, which is your own information about your patients effectively, uh, you can still build an audience, custom audience and a lookalike audience on that. Even if you don't, like I say, the algorithms and the machine learning that goes into it now is so sophisticated mm. that Facebook will pick up eventually that if you leave it running for a week, it's going to get enough information to give you a good audience. So what is ever, what's all the fuss about with this new Facebook change? Because I'll, I'm pulling up an email. I got, let me yep. explain the email. Maybe you can help. So people are freaking out. Hey, uh, you know, they, they read this article and they said, Hey, I'm not sure how many of you are involved with social media for your studies, but last year, this is like a site group thread. Last year, starting sometime in October, we started having issues with our Facebook and ads, and it took a few months to get things resolved or approved, but now they're going to make it harder to advertise. This happened with a few recruitment vendors and our local social media vendor, but I'm sure they're working on ways to get around this or figure out how to continue. So people are like kind of <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of the things that's come in, it's, it's been confused by the iOS 14 update last year. So uh, Facebook stopped tracking conversions in the same way it used to. And it's came up with a really awful system, an awful method of tracking conversions. So uh, even not just conversion, tracking anything at all, really. So when when people were going along nicely two years ago, uh, sometime last year, this changed a bit. People suddenly saw a, a decrease in the effectiveness of their Facebook advertising. Nothing to do with the this health targeting that's, that's happening now. Uh, so things went bad anyway. And this extra one, people are assuming it's going to make it worse. My own experience of it is that it's uh, there may be a slight, uh, if it, not to get too technical on it, but the, the ads may stay in the learning phase for a bit longer mm. um, because you're not targeting by the health related interests in the first place. But eventually, as I say, the, um, the data they use is, is so, it's so clever that they will then eventually get you a good audience if you leave the ads running. It's mm. just that the tracking is still a bit messed up. And it's not that easy to uh, to track them. And there's a lot of people, a lot of Facebook gurus talking about this all the time. Um, it's it was Apple's fault in reality, but uh, Facebook reacted in a way that um, was not helpful to smaller advertisers. That's for sure. And interestingly enough, this is a side note. We're going to continue getting to the article, but I had somebody from Meta. Meta is the parent company of Facebook. They hired the first ever clinical research coordinator at meta last year and i mm -hmm. interviewed him on the channel he was very tight-lipped mums the word on a, basically yeah, everything yeah. basically i didn't get much out of him but what i can you can get a lot from what they don't want to answer so when i asked him about the metaverse basically got quiet and said we can't talk so i'm what i'm thinking is they changed their name to Meta. They're push. They're gonna push mm. this metaverse. They have data on patients. They want to run some kind of trials. It's not gonna be like therapeutic trials. I don't think Facebook's becoming a pharma company, but 
they are going to do different psychological studies and maybe offer something to do with these centralized trials. And we can get into that in the next, you have it in on your list as well, decentralized trials. Could it be something like similar to Amazon where Amazon was in the business of helping vendors sell their stuff. When Amazon saw something selling very well, they immediately white labeled it and sold their own, put it at the top and for less. That's like a huge business model for them. Could Meta theoretically do this for healthcare? I would think they probably could. Um, They're a bit more digital focused, I think. So most likely their trials would be based on that apps or that sort of usage data, observational data, maybe. Um, seems to be, I mean, Google certainly seem to be looking at that, that sort of way and Apple as well. So I think in, in, terms of, in terms of Facebook actually getting into the trials space, it kind of makes sense because they have all this data, but I'm not sure what they would gain from it in, an, in one way. I mean, it's... Um, it, it makes it does make sense for them to do it. I can see Amazon possibly <laughs> going to go into it more heavily. Um, Amazon presumably going to end up uh, producing their own generic treatments, yep. I would think, and selling yep. them. That, They're that in the seems, pharmacy space, Amazon. Yeah, seems to be the way to go. So for Facebook, yeah, I mean, they should have probably done this a few years ago um, about having uh, more focus on clinical trials. Interestingly, as far as I can tell, there was a, an interest that you could target called clinical trial. Uh, and I believe that's still there. I don't think they're stopping that because that's not health related. It's not about, it doesn't tell you anything about the person's it could health be about condition. career related, right? It could be anything. So, so you could still target that. It, and it sometimes works. It sometimes doesn't. You, 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 if you're targeting people to take part in clinical trial, who've already been in a clinical trial, it may not be your actual audience. Yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff there. We could spend a whole podcast on just on Facebook, but let's go next point: relationships with patients and key opinion leaders. What um, what's the benefit here? Patient advocacy groups. Yeah. So again, it's it's fi- finding the people who can actually promote your trial for you. And again, a digital platforms are a great way to do this. Uh, I think I said before, so TikTok, etc., Reddit. There's a lot of people you can find on all these different platforms who are already discussing relevant information so if you do some sort of social listening where you are finding out what people are talking about online and there are tools you can get or you could just spend a lot of time doing it yourself (laughs) um you can then say ah well as this person on this platform is talking a lot about this condition that we're interested in (coughs) excuse me so Let's approach them and say, right, we've got this clinical trial. Would your audience be interested in participating? To approach them as a potential influencer? Yeah, yes. So they would then, what I've found over the time is it's always, if if you uh, try and promote a trial into, let's say, a patient advocacy group website or a forum about a condition, you always come across like a salesperson. And you're, you're not usually that welcome. Whereas if you can build a relationship with people who are already in it and already have some influence and they're happy, then if they introduce it, you get a much better return. I see. So uh, approaching the influencers is kind of a, 
that's one area where I do think that pharma could, in theory, um, get away with less sites. But they mm-hmm. haven't been able to do it so far. It's not like a patient influencer is a new thing. It's been around for over oh. a decade. Oh, for sure. And I, I think the the extra focus on digital now is is making it more likely that they will be uh, there'll be more connections between these people and the pharma companies. Right. And well, for my, I think it's later on in the, in the article as well. But I think for my way of thinking, you're getting the patients involved in trial design and all those kind of aspects makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, but there's risk. There's potential risk to the influencer as well because the influencer they've worked probably years to build their brand. Yes, yes. one wrong partnership, like I don't know. Let's just throw out Pfizer. They're the big. They're the mm-hmm. ones in the news. Yep, a lot of things happen. Whistleblowers come out. Patients forever altered because they were in a vaccine study. One of that comes out and says, "Hey." I joined because this person told me to. Yes. It's a cascade of like, hey, this person's going to lose all their influence. I, I guess that's true. And that, that comes back to that mistrust, doesn't it? So I think there's, yeah. um, it's a risk, uh, but I think it's it's more of a risk not to have patients involved in their trial design because right. the, uh, if you design a, if your protocol you put together is too onerous for anyone to actually want to take part, then you're not going to recruit anyone anyway. So. Right. <laughs> this is true. It's a, it's a going to be interesting to see the next decade. I think there's going to be a lot more influencers being involved yep. Uh, yep. in one way, shape or form. Okay. Next one, traditional media. And, and it's interesting. You put these two things together, traditional Edge. media and, and podcast awareness campaign. Yes, um, I was, I was, I was thinking, what can I put podcast? Because I didn't, I didn't want to put it into the digital bit, and I didn't think it made sense to have a separate bit. So I just put soon it will. <laughs> <laughs> it could, it could do. I mean, things like this make sense. Um, but yeah, that, that's simply about. I mean, even let's say three or four years ago, I think a lot of trials were based on radio ads, press ads, in local newspapers, or even national newspapers, and yeah. there's been a big shift away from that. And podcasts. I don't think have taken off and have got the widespread listenership that some of them have, but not the ones we're talking about particularly that even the radio would have, but they are there. And it's again, these, these key patient influencers having their own podcast. That's, that's the way that would work best. Yeah. I'm in a, I moved from orange County, which is like a suburb of LA. It's a huge megapolis. And I moved to the small underserved town in Arizona called Yuma. And over here, traditional media like newspaper, radio, they have this local website called Yuma Exchange, which is like a Craigslist, but just for oh, the yeah. city. Wow. That works. Uh, so I know what you mean by traditional media. Like, don't, don't, you know, guys, like it's in certain cities, especially the smaller towns, it's, still probably one of the more yeah. effective ways to do it, it yeah I, I i definitely agree and it's it, it depends on the trial doesn't it it depends on what um where you your audience is located but that, that makes sense there's no point ignoring it it's, yeah you know, it's still yeah. there people still pay millions for the super bowl ads don't they so you know that's uh, yeah that still works, so. <laughs> okay next one patient application platform having an effective patient <clears throat> application platform so what is this like a landing page? Uh, well, it 
the landing page is where the patient would apply, but it's the back end that's the mm. key to it. It's having the um, having a system that makes things effective. It, it won't necessarily attract more patient, but it is going to make the whole process easier and more effective. It's also about transparency, so letting everybody see. Obviously, sponsors can't see people's names and things like that, but they can should be able to look at this platform and say, ah, right, okay, XYZ region is doing great. This region is not doing so great. And just working out from there what can be improved and, and what needs to be changed. So it's it, it's the back-end running of the system obviously needs to be fully um, compliant with the HIPAA and GDPR and all those things. But it, 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 having that effective and efficient will really help with the ongoing running of the trial uh, just to make sure everything works. It, it also stops patients being forgotten. Someone's applied and they're just sitting in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere and it's in a desk and nobody sees it. But if it's only a central system that someone say, well, nothing's happened. There's been no follow-up to this, this yeah. patient. And the longer the time period, the more the patient forgets they even did it. A lot of times it's just impulsive filling it yeah. out unless they get a call right away, like immediately or a text, they forget it, about it. I think that's, that's one of the things down the list, but that, that immediate follow-up is... Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a real key to, uh, and if you can do it as soon as possible, you're going to get a much higher, what we'd call conversion rate, a much higher percentage of the people actually following through. You're going to be able to reach them. I mean, you can, I've worked on trials where the people were not followed up for two weeks. So they, could, they didn't even realize they had applied for a trial. They, they were interested, but they'd forgotten about <laughs> it. And it's, uh, yeah. It's like a negative, vicious cycle because I've done, I've been on the end of, on the, on the receiving end of these leads as a site. And when I first started in research as a coordinator, I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Like some company I don't know is sending me leads. This is great. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, I was excited, started calling and like, as soon as I got the list, I would call. And, you know, most of the patients say, no, I don't know what this is. I'm not interested. Boom, boom, boom. So after like five or six of those, you're like, Hey, I'm better off going into my waiting room and talking to the patients that are sitting there yeah. waiting. So I think it's like, but I do think some good leads get lost. And then the next time you get that list or the next month or the month after the month after you as a coordinator, you become more and more uh, non-open to following up. No matter how good, maybe the vendor's improving their leads but you're not giving them a chance anymore because you've had bad experience. So, you know, coordinator time's limited. This is a complicated one. This yeah. is very complicated. Yeah. It's yeah, psychology. I, I, I think that's where, you know, outsourcing the follow-up uh, can make perfect sense. I agree. I agree. What a concept. <laughs> Let's outsource <laughs> this. Uh, okay. Not bad. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What I, is this? So for me, it's it's um, effectively it's 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 essential that um, you know diversity of trial participants. It's become another big buzzword like decentralization. Diversity also built up over the last couple of years, and I think you know a lot of the pharma companies were treating it as a checkbox exercise. Um, possibly some still are, but it is it's a key factor. I think it needs to be. It's not just about getting diverse populations it's about understanding that we are diverse populations you know we are people are diverse it's not like oh we need to get lots of people from different backgrounds people do have different backgrounds so that's that's why patients are just 
people. So diversity and inclusion, it, it should just be there. It's just, it's, it's fundamental to, uh, you know, getting good outcomes. So this is something that's near and dear to our heart. We started Latinos in clinical research mm-hmm. last year. Um, one of the members sent an internal email and they said, look, this is a Janssen recent this is jansen on increasing diversity in its covid vaccine trial so there was an article on fierce pharma it said in their ensemble trial 783 participants from eight countries and the u.s only 15 percent or hispanic latino 13 percent black and 74 percent caucasian um and this is when they're using countries outside of the u.s and I'm not sure if the article tells us where those countries are. You know, if it's uh, Latin America, I mean, you should have more Latinos. Yeah. Um, but basically, what this article is saying is not much is being done. There's a lot of talk about this stuff. But at the end of the day, the results basically the same as they've always been. Yeah, it's, al- it's always been, you know. The, the standard trial participant is, is a, a middle-aged white guy, really, isn't he? So kind of <laughs> oh, man, we got a lot of work on this, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is interesting. Research site assist. Oh, no, sorry, I missed one. Best practice education. I think these two go hand in hand, I'd say. It's about the research site, the best practice education in the research site. So this is, that's aimed at the, the sponsors, really, the best practice education thing to say, Right. If we can get, if we can look at the sites which are doing best, let's emulate what's going well and try and get the other sites to do that. That's effectively it to try and spread the spread the good stuff around the sites. But it can only be done if there is good research site liaison. Um, well, I think there's there's often been a, a sort of I don't know. It's a, it's a conflict between the sponsors and the sites. Um, it always seems to be. They don't, neither side trusts each other and they're not even sides in reality. Everyone's trying to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. it always seems to be very strange to me how that works. Um, and having dealt with a lot of sites over the years, I'm thinking, yeah, this the site's voice is not really listened to over much by the big pharma companies very often. I'm sure perhaps your experience is slightly different, um, but it's, it just seems to me that the pharma companies dictate what happens patients are now being listened to a lot liaison with the sites really could be better to get that um well to get things working more smoothly yeah that's the, and that's maybe a position we're going to start seeing more and more of i mean with the labor shortage you know it might be considered a luxury for many but it's definitely not something that should be ignored uh i think we've those are like the biggest roi return on investment positions that a sponsor could make is any kind of patient support or uh, sorry, site support. Um, but like a real site support, not just giving the site more things to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's negative ROI in my opinion. Yeah, I, I do agree. And I think the, the, the constant new technology and new systems and here's another platform to use. It's um, yeah, it is not making things easier. Um, no. It might make things easier for the, sponsor uh, or the CRO but it certainly isn't making things easier for well it's gotten to the point where like we get you know as a site we get e-diaries certain studies use electronic diaries certain studies use paper diaries 
it's gotten to the point, and this is 2022, where we hate, like, we cringe when we hear the sponsors say, oh, it's going to be an e-diary in this study. Like, we cheer, we celebrate when it's paper diary. Wow, yeah. That should tell you guys a lot out, out there, but they probably think the opposite. Oh, sites are going to love this because yeah. they don't have to do it. We end up becoming the help desk for the patients who can't connect their tablets yeah. at two in the yeah. morning. That's that's not what we signed up for as sites. No, I agree. And I think that that sort of support, the, the IT support that you have to do alongside what you're actually doing just is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. To yeah, me. it's much easier. Take a piece of paper circle some numbers and then give it to me at your next visit hey old school but quicker (laughs) uh this next one you kind of discussed it patient-friendly trial design kind of using the not just using the influencer to help but maybe keeping like this is patient-centric right yes yeah but where where are we with this because is it just a buzzword i think it, it, it possibly is still i mean i think people are more aware and all the big pharma companies have got their patient engagement teams and patient centricity people and all sorts of things like that but it's if you look at the reality of what actually is happening is it actually more patient centric certainly with trial designs that you you see sometimes you think i don't know other people talk about this on linkedin as well it's um you copy and paste the protocol from a previous trial Mm. well does it actually need to have all those different inclusion exclusion criteria, all these different elements, do you need? Do you really need a BMI less than twenty to be participating in this trial? All those things like that, and I just think having a patient input or a, a, an outsider even input at the start at the trial design stage might be able to highlight some of these things that are going to make it more difficult to recruit. Yeah, but see, it's tough to. And I'd love to get someone from a sponsor, but they they probably won't speak freely on it until they retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there, a lot of those criteria, inclusion, exclusion, are strict, and they're getting stricter. Mm-hmm. So you can argue it's becoming less patient centric. Yeah, um, yeah. in that sure. regard, because it, it, cherry picking data is actually good. It, it's favorable for FDA when when mm-hmm. they send the the data to the FDA. They say, well, we know if we keep it under this BMI, we're going to avoid AEs that may or may not be related to the study drug, but we'll, we'll just avoid that. So the data looks cleaner. But in reality, what you get is like the studies I'm doing, where if you really look at the inclusion exclusion criteria, it maybe only applies to 10% of the yep. real patients with that diagnosis. It's not mm-hmm. like the average Joe and Jane on the street with that diagnosis no they're excluded what we want is like the special one like the outlier to, yeah. to do this study which it, it limits it limits the usefulness of the treatment um, yeah and you think well what's the, is there actually i mean there is a point obviously for those people but surely trying to aim for the the most good for the most people is what they should be trying to look for yes and uh, yeah so there's a lot there Decentralization, we talked about decentralized yeah. trials. I think it's good to give patients the option. Like today, you don't have to come in the office. We're happy to send a nurse to your home. Sites have been doing this anyways. Like yeah. I've had, even when you're not supposed to do it, I'll be honest now, because that site sold it a while ago. You, you're supposed, you were supposed to have the patient come in for every office, but sometimes the patients fit. You know what? 
especially depression studies, right? Uh, I don't feel like coming today. I'm like very depressed. I'm going to stay in bed. Well, we have a visit, you know, Mr. So-and-so. Yeah, I know. Take me out of the study. Um, I mean, when they're depressed, this is what they do. Yeah. So you're like, no, no. What if we send someone to your house and do everything there? Okay, that's fine. So we've done this stuff. This is not new, but now sponsor is saying, well, why don't we do this? This this has always been something that sites, you know, even if it's off the record have been doing like, what's the point of having a patient drive 40 minutes in traffic to get a PK draw when you can send a nurse to their house to do it. Now, I certainly, I think that that makes sense. It also touches on the, I think the next thing there is travel and things like that, isn't it? So I think that's yes. both of those things. If if you need someone to come into the site, okay. But if it's awkward for them, I mean, people living with various conditions, it's awkward for them to do anything sometimes. So make it as easy as possible. And even to the point of, yeah, don't get the person to order a taxi and pay them back, get the taxi for them. You know, it's it's one of those, there, there are, <laughs> organizations that will do this on your behalf concierge services that will you know fly people and put them up in hotels and things so use them (laughs) that's what i'm that's what i yeah if you you need to get the people then go for it i think it's a great tool that hopefully we'll start seeing more of it i mean just to show you how crazy some of these guys who are designing these studies are or maybe out of touch is a better word we had a social anxiety disorder study that had zero decentralized element and zero virtual visit. It's they required social anxiety, literal <laughs> social anxiety. They required them to wow. come into the office wow. every visit. And we told the person at the site selection visit, this is going to be impossible to do by mm. the very definition of who you're, <laughs> who you're targeting. Like, how is this going to work? You're targeting people who don't want to travel anywhere. So, okay. <laughs> okay. We got a lot of work to do, guys. Okay, travel expenses, you did that. Retention. This is mm. recruitment and retention. We'll put this together. We're actually coming out with a recruitment and retention academy. Shout out to Marjorie and Carla from Topaz Clinical Research. We're supposed to have a Zoom call to finalize the curriculum. Cool. But re- retention is more important than recruitment, in my opinion. Uh Okay, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of numbers, recruitment is more difficult, but uh, yes. retention is obviously, it, well, retention actually feeds back into recruitment anyway, because if people drop off the tire, you need to recruit some more people. Right. Obviously, you can over-recruit in the first place, but maybe people don't want to do that. The retention, I think the, the most widely reported statistic is 30% of people drop out of trials. Um, so it's, it is a big factor. It's a big, big factor. And I think well, one of the biggest things for it, um, certainly from a site level, communication is a great thing. But again, I think you can outsource it. You can outsource this communication, ongoing communication with patients on trials to people who will have the time <laughs> because this is yeah. what their job is to phone someone up every week, find out when their birthday is and send them a card, you know, all those kind of things. It, it's, it's all trying to, to replace someone from a trial is more difficult to, to recruit them in the first place human element having a daycare for the participants kids when they come in i mean there's so many things you can do i think that number 30 percent um 30 percent drop out i think that's inflated um because of oncology which is like the majority of trials oncology patients don't drop out right they they either die or get withdrawn or 
they stay as long as they can. Um, so I think that number goes a lot higher or a 30% withdraw. I think it's more like 50 or higher in real, like real world studies. If you take away oncology, mm-hmm. um, in my experiences with central nervous system disorder studies, just anecdotally, we have 30% completion. I mean, these are yeah. like, we have 70% dropout yeah. for various yeah. reasons. So yeah, we got a lot of work to do on those fronts as well. I'd, I mean, that, that, that is, yeah, that's very high. And I think the the key to it is about the communication with the patient and make, well, making it easy. So again, trial design can help this. If you have to attend five visits in three months or whatever, visit fatigue is going to set in and you think after the third one, you think, well, I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to pretend I'm ill and not go. <laughs> um, and then it, it has a knock-on effect. So yeah, I think the making it as easy as possible. So being actually patient centric um, is the key to it. Yeah. We, there's a lot we can discuss there too. So this was a great list, Ross. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Is there anything like if people you primarily work with uh, sponsors or sites or both? Yeah, I mean, last year I actually um, started working with a company um, which had mostly been freelance before that for a long time. So, so now I'm, I'm looking more at the sponsor side of things. I have done a lot of site work. So, what I'm what I'm trying to do basically is be a, a sort of consultant for clinical trials to make them actually work better for recruitment and retention. So ideally I'd be doing an audit of what people are doing now and then deep dive, look into what, what's going right, what's going wrong, and then introducing all these different aspects and saying, right, okay, well, you're not doing any of this. So perhaps you should do this. Here's, here's how you can go about it. The bit that you're doing here isn't recruiting anybody. So let's work on that and make that work better. Uh, this bit's working really well. Let's keep on that and actually, Put more money into the advertising or whatever it may be so that's that's what i'm sort of looking at the, the strategizing um and the company i'm working for is, is is not offering a patient recruitment service per se it's a patient recruitment consultancy service where we can do some of the things but other things i would then be looking to work with partners or recommending other people to to, to actually help for the best outcomes all around mm-hmm. very good if anybody Wants to get, I mean, everybody who's watching, especially if you watch till the end, you need to connect with Ross. Uh, It's a must. So go connect. The link to his LinkedIn is underneath the show notes. If you're listening on the podcast, it's in the show notes. If you're watching, it's underneath the video. But thank you, Ross, for your time. Um, Is there anything else we didn't discuss that you think is uh, important? I think it's all, it's, it's all there. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do research these things all the time. I'm always coming across new methods of, of actually recruiting and retaining patients. And I'm actually trying to make sure I know that whether they work or not. So I get approached a lot, but I also investigate, <laughs> well, is this actually true? Will this actually be a good solution? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of a central hub for these kind of things. So if people approach me and say, well, how can I do this? I can usually point you in the right direction. This stuff is so dynamic that it's like you almost need an update every six months because like you remember snapchat a few years ago is like mm-hmm. all the yeah. rage we didn't even yeah. discuss it well i can't remember the last time i've been on snapchat it's it's tiktok now yeah exactly that and snapchat worked I, and I, I know some um trials for younger people particularly snapchat was a good thing 
is it going to work today? Possibly not. <laughs> this stuff's dynamic, guys. But Ross <clears throat> is your man. Go connect with him. Thank you so much, Ross, for coming on and uh, giving us your wisdom. Not everybody does this. They try to keep the info to themselves so that you pay them to get the mm-hmm. info. But Ross just gives it out because he knows this stuff's hard. You get to need him anyways. So go connect with him and we'll catch you all later, guys. Thank you, Ross. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. Bye-bye.